Hello, this is the Lunar Poach Podcast. I'm David Turner. Today's episode focuses on accessibility at live events. Today's host is Harry Giles, and they are joined by poets Andrew Simons and Abby Palmer. The discussion looks at ways that live arts and literature events can be made more accessible to performers and audiences alike, as well as what the term actually means when applied to such events. This is by no means a definitive conversation, and everyone involved with this episode welcomes anyone that wishes to continue the conversation online. You can reach Harry on Twitter at Harry Giles, all one word, and as always you can reach us at Silent underscore Tongue on Twitter and Lunar Poetry Podcasts on Facebook, SoundCloud and Tumblr, as well as being able to subscribe to us on iTunes for Apple users and Stitcher for Android users. And remember to tell your friends, yeah? Cheers. There will be a full transcript of this conversation for download, which you can find via a link in the description box for this episode. Enjoy. Okay, welcome. Um, I'm Harry Giles, and I'm here with Andre Simons and Abby Palmer to do the the accessibility chat for Lunar Poetry. Um so let's let's introduce ourselves. Andre, do you want to say yeah. a bit about what you do? I'm Andre Simons. I'm a writer, but more focusing in poetry. <laughs> Background in theatre. Currently working on my latest sort of series of poems called Turtle Man, looking at uh, displacement and um, islandness, as I tend to say. Yeah, great. It's, and Abby, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I guess I would term myself as an interactive poet. Um, I, I'm very interested in the way language uh, can be altered. Our experience of language and poetry can be altered by um, in, uh, multi-sensory experiences. So um, my most recent project, Alchemy, was about the way a poem can be changed by uh, different sensory inputs and I'm sort of moving more in that direction uh, to understand how our physical experience changes what we hear. Fantastic Um, and I'm Harry, I'm a writer and performer, Uh, I'm based in Edinburgh where I do a bit of production of other people as well and a lot of ranting on the internet. Uh, which is one of the reasons I think I've ended up hosting this podcast, um, which is about accessibility in the broadest sense. And we're going to focus the conversation, or, or at least start the conversation, talking about disability accessibility, um, both when it's done well and it's done badly. But we're also interested and in going to explore a wider approach to accessibility and how class and gender and race and age and all of these similar um vectors of marginalisation um, can also affect accessibility and how we can take account of them. Um, so I, I've written some questions um, to get us started and we're going to start with the positive and the reason for this is when a bunch of people get together to talk about accessibility often we start with what I think of as the accessibility moan where we <laughs> share all of the horror stories of which there are very unfortunately many um, but just to change the frame of the conversation, and we are, are going to do that, I thought I'd start by asking um, Avi and Andre, what is the single best accessibility experience that you have had in the arts? Uh, I have a really good one. Um, I did a uh, gig uh, with the Sisters Uncut op- Occupation in Peckham a while back, and it was the most... I Recently, at that point, I had moved 
into an electric wheelchair for the first time. I was very uncomfortable in, in that I'd never performed in a wheelchair before. Um, and it was the first time I really needed to. Luckily, it was in an occupation, in an occupied space that they didn't need to have made wheelchair accessible. They not only made it accessible, but made sure on all of their Facebook invites, on all of their events promotion, that it was very notably accessible. Um, they also made it a female and non-binary space only. And in our preparation for the performance, uh, the, the events promoter emailed me and talked to me about trigger warnings um, and making it a safe space. And actually, as a result, all of the performers found that because we were allowed to discuss tr trigger warnings in advance, we were able to all be ourselves a lot more and were able to have conversations that perhaps live on stage you wouldn't normally feel comfortable in in having i came onto onto the stage in my wheelchair and was able to get up and move around and get back into it but i was also allowed to be myself in terms of the other types of issues which which come up when you're performing you put yourself into a persona and sometimes professionalism doesn't always equal mm. disabled mm. or traumatized or, or mm. suffering and i think that being having the conversation in advance about uh, this is what we're allowed to talk about and this is how we're going to frame it meant that everybody that evening went away feeling nurtured and having really honest it was the most honest performance I'd ever done. That's, such, that's a really wonderful yeah. story and I think it's lovely to kind of start with that point of accessibility even around something that has become as frustratingly debated as trigger warnings not as something that is supposed to like limit programmers or shut down performers or put um, constraints on speech but there's something that when you do it right amplifies speech and amplifies diversity and, and amplifies and strengthens the conversations that we can have and that's that's what my hope for accessibility is and I think that's a really great kind of attitude to come in to it with. And what about you, Andre? What, what, what's your sort of best experience uh, of access? I, I think it's probably around a mutual friend of ours, mm. Sandra Allen. The last three programs I was a part of, so Sandra had programmed me. Uh, the first one being Kachin Kachin Kachunga in Glasgow. Um, then there was Seep in Edinburgh and Who's Your Dandy as well in Edinburgh. Mm. And it's more than just the particular programmers. I've long admired how Sandra approaches from the beginning to the end um, programming her events. And it's everything from who is going to perform and really researching and going out and discovering and making sure that who's on the bill, that she has a wide range. And it's not about ticking boxes, but it's about if I can afford in a space to people who deserves a voice, not necessarily, but deserves a voice who should have a voice, who should have that chance and making sure that in a two-hour space that there's a wide range of voices. And I really, I really admire beginning there and then as well as making sure that the spaces are accessible, everything from wheelchairs to uh, hearing impaired, sight impaired, all of that is sorted and thought through very, very um, meticulously from her end. And all three events I've been with, I've thoroughly enjoyed. And I think for me, she set the model and it was many things I had never thought about that now when I think about a gig, 
I actually I hear her voice in my head. It's like that voice on my shoulder, you <laughs> yeah. know. And it's sort yeah. of like, yeah. um, if they invited me, does it have wheelchair access? Does yeah. it have, you know, yeah. it's it's the BSR interpreter. You know, it's, it's all these things that I hadn't really thought about before that now become. She's now one of many voices in my head yeah. that become, you know, in terms of um, should an, when an event is happening how, and how to approach it and how to yeah. make sure that it's accessible. Or like, for example, I'm not the only token out of the program, <laughs> you know, program yeah. of people that there's all sorts that I trust that the program has really thought about who's going to be on stage as well. Yeah. Sandra's had a similar influence on me in, in, in how I do programming and producing yes, as well. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I've, I've learned a lot from Sandra's work and I'm really grateful for it. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull in from something else, um, which is an event that happened in Glasgow recently run by an organisation called Arica. Um, and it was a weekend of talks and discussions and performances called Refuse Powers Grasp that was about the, the connections between uh, prison abolition politics and a radical racial politics and a radical queer and trans politics as well and bringing all of those together was quite quite an amazing weekend and in a major publicly funded venue um and there was a lot of messaging in in all of the run-up to that event around accessibility from multiple directions so it was a free event all of the venues uh, had step-free access um, but they also, so there were some of those basic infrastructures in there, but also they just had this repeated message of if there is anything we can do to make you able to come, or if you feel like you might not be able to come and want to, please get in touch and, and we'll help. Um, and I saw that message over and over again, and it did take repeating. And the more the event was advertised, the more I realised it was going to be really, really, really popular and crowded. Um, and it's also a free event, which is great for access, but also mm. often means that you have these huge crowds trying to get into a small space, and sometimes that can be an access nightmare. Mm. So um, I wrote to them, and eventually, it took me a long time to get out the guts to write to them, and said, so when venues are really packed and uh, and crowded, sometimes I have panic attacks, and it would be really nice if I could come to your events without having to stand around in really noisy crowds and be kind of crushed through a door. Um, and I was also wondering if you, maybe you had like a quiet space that people can sit in where it isn't going to be really loud. And they got back to me really, really quickly and said, yes, we'll just reserve you a seat. That's totally fine. Have you got any friends that are coming that you want us to, to reserve a seat for <laughs> beside you? We can do that too. And there'll be a quiet space upstairs. So they did all of that just like quickly. And I think they were doing a bunch of it anyway. And then when I got there, one of the programmers clapped me and um, just came in over and had a quick chat with me about it, just in a really personable way. Um, and it just made me feel so welcomed and, and looked after and cared for. And I know quite a few people with, with different disabilities and different access needs had quite similar experiences, so that they were looking after it both in an organisational way, but also in a personal way that makes a difference. Because I think at heart, access is about learning how to treat everyone around you as a human who Mm. deserves connection and Mm. that there are loads of different types of humans and your assumption about what a human might need is usually wrong you have to actually listen to what what they need and then try and help so yeah it was it was that was a really good experience um what did what do either of you think about what's kind of common between those stories what do they tell us about access i think listening Mm -hmm. listen listening exactly what you've just said the idea of assuming nothing but making as much information readily available from the beginning as both a promoter 
for performers and a promoter for audience members stating what you are able to provide what you may not be able to provide and um and a contact for if if you have a need please ask in advance all of those things are are really important and um as <laughs> sorry i just went into a loop in my head there yeah listen listening to what people want mm. listening to what people need um and making sure that when you set up a platform as andre said not a token gesture but a this is actually in the ethos the the core of of what we want to be happening then also being aware of where you falter as an organizer mm. and if you don't if you if you search and you have a space that isn't accessible say it be be upfront mm. and say it and know that maybe the next time that that you will search all the way or don't advertise because you may have a BSL interpreter that it's accessible where you can't have wheelchair users coming in you know mm. what i mean or you have to know where your limits are and letting people know and letting an audience know and letting but yet always knowing that you in, the intention hopefully is that you're growing from there that you're developing mm. from there mm. if that is what your aim is i feel like if you wish to widen your audience you have to be aware of that and you have to be able to be truthful with your mm-hmm. with yourself as an organization or as a person organizing where you are and where you're going and i think people appreciate that as opposed to people trying to tick box or, or say that they're doing something but they're actually not and they're saying oh I, I, we were we did you know yeah. um, or skimming yeah. over or it skimming yeah. over yeah. it exactly yeah. Do, yeah and I think part of both of those is knowing that no one person has all, all the answers yeah. as well yeah um that i think being able to admit that you don't know it all yet and that it's not all in place that you don't have to do access perfectly to do yeah. some yeah. access when we started taking it properly seriously for um an event that i co-run in edinburgh anatomy when we started taking access properly seriously we wrote up all of the access information that we currently had and then at the bottom we said this is a work in progress we know we haven't got anything and we know that we've probably made some mistakes here yeah. and we really appreciate anyone telling us what we've got wrong and what we can do to yeah. improve and several times people have written to us and said thanks for what you're doing already here's a thing where you missed a thing that would have been really helpful and we've made changes and yeah. that's really hurt and that's that's an organization instantly where where all of the people who run it have chronic illnesses or disabilities mm. in some form like different different kinds of things and we don't know everything and we make mistakes but yes. it's that's okay on another accessibility issue the a few years ago there was a man who puts together a well-known sort of gay man's anthology british gay man's anthology you know someone asked the person why is it in the past anthologies there hasn't been any uh, black male voices really and the person was saying well i put calls out i just and the person who questioned said so do you You, do you actually go approach people if you yeah. know no one's coming to you or you could contact me i have loads of you know quite an international reach and i've never heard anything you know what i mean and, <laughs> and and i think it's those sort of things and the, but the person was in such denial about i think because they didn't want to be labeled racist or or, <laughs> yeah. or anyway, you know yeah. that they were in such denial around that yeah. that um it's like you can't go anywhere because that means the person either they take it on board and then they they say uh, you know someone's actually offering me reaching out and saying i'm going to take them up on it yeah. or they will continue in many ways doing what they're doing and from what i know it is and 
Black Summer is continuing in the way that they're doing it because they're either afraid to go into the, the work of reaching out or mm-hmm. something else is preventing. But it's, it's, that's just another accessibility. Yeah. It's, it's people not, or tapping about what I was saying before, not being able to admit where they're faltering, you know. Yeah. I, I think that's, a, that's something that um, came up. Uh, a re- recently I was working with somebody to put together a poetry project and we realised that our core lineup of people we were going to ask to perform were not entirely but majority white cisgender able-bodied heterosexual men from academic backgrounds <laughs> and we we went actually well this isn't ready yet then mm. we need to do more research yes all of these people are capable of doing this job but that doesn't mean they're the best people for the job yeah. or it doesn't mean our pro it, it it's about asking yourself do these people yes are yes maybe they they are capable of doing this but are there other people that i haven't been made aware of yet let's look for those people let's do more searching before we release another anthology full of white heterosexual (laughs) able you know like we we don't need more and it's not about ticking boxes it's about saying but we've heard these voices we those voices exist this isn't a new thing (laughs) um for me that was important so so we haven't gone ahead with that aspect of the project until we're until Mm -hmm. we're ready and and we're asking the the questions i'm not saying we're doing it right but we at least started by admitting our our flaws i think that's an important thing and there's no shame in it yeah like that's that's great we're all flawed (laughs) Yeah. yeah i feel like part of that as well is that if you're doing an ongoing project building diversity into your artists and into your audiences often takes a bit of time because you have to win trust in a lot of cases. That's, that's often the case with disability and it can be the case with, with kind of other, other lines of marginalisation as well. If all of the organisers come from a particular position of privilege, they have to work extra hard yeah. to, to get diversity in because everyone's going to be worried that they're just the token. Yeah. And I've been there. I'm like, if somebody invites me to, to, to talk on a panel about autism or whatever, I immediately think, like, am I just there to be the one token with a bunch of doctors? <laughs> or is this something that's actually going to centre uh, autistic people's experiences? And I, and I think because such a shallow approach to access and a shallow approach to diversity has become endemic in the arts, that there's often a bit of suspicion. And if so, if you're doing, a long, uh, in, if you're doing an ongoing thing, you have to learn how to build trust. Who is the face of your organisation? How does your organisation present itself? How does it build trust over time? How does it show that it's open to change and welcoming more people? Because those of us who, who suffer from one degree of oppression or marginalisation or another have just got used to being let down over and over and over and over again. And so we form our own spaces and we, we just got used to not being let into other people's. <laughs> um, sorry, that's quite, yeah, that's no, quite no, a I think, vision of Well, it, I think it's an interesting thing because um, within that, um, I've also become very aware of a lot of platforms that have been made for people who are in these, these small minorities that create groups where they care for each other and look after each other. And there tends to be a lot of infighting about you've done this wrong mm. you've, and, and it can become very aggressive. I was trying to explain recently to, to somebody about how it feels, all those microaggressions every day, like just getting into a bus on a wheelchair is a constant, you're being stared at every day. And so when something feels like 
like a personal attack. After a few negative experiences, your cortisol's risen, you're far more likely to hit back and be aggressive. And as I've got older, I've become the stereotypical, <laughs> angry, disabled person on, on Facebook. But my Twitter feed can be a negative experience. <laughs> and actually, what I think is important to do as well is sometimes get the balance right between yes there's space for anger but there's also space to go look there's a flaw here there's a gap but we're human let's not attack each other let's try to have a conversation otherwise it's a small minority infighting mm -hmm. with each other about micro details and then on mainstream platforms everyone's totally oblivious <laughs> to that yeah, argument yeah. because we're too busy having the, the minor conversation and that's a very difficult line to tread i don't know i don't know how you go about having both of those conversations you need space for both things <laughs> yeah I'm going to steer us back to the positive end of things, and then, we, then <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll go back there for a little bit, and then we can go into the um, into some of the some of the angry ranting, which I think we all need. <laughs> we all need a bit of a vent here and there. What do you think? And you touched on this earlier, Abby. What do you think are the art artistic possibilities of wider accessibility? What does good accessibility add to a piece of art or to a piece of arts programming or producing? Um, how can we think about accessibility not as limiting art, but as amplifying and expanding art? Uh, something that I think is really important is the idea of how somebody else's experience can change your own performance, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to use an example of the project that I've been working on recently. Alchemy is, is a one-on-one -on -one performance. It requires um, multi-sensory interaction. So I'm performing a poem to your face with potentially touch or potentially smell. And it's meant to be confrontational. I want people to be telling me I'm not enjoying this sometimes. But what I realized, um, some most people respond positively to that. And I specifically um, placed it in platforms where it's not just a, a, a poetry audience so that people who don't who say well I don't enjoy poetry or I haven't had a good experience can talk differently about about how poetry is and for me I thought okay I'm ticking all the right boxes here this is a good conversation to be having and then somebody um, came along and said well actually my neurological profile is is different and you in, invading my physical space like this has been immensely uncomfortable and I realized I hadn't asked permission mm. to make that intrusion and by asking permission to intrude I don't think it would have changed the experience it could still have been a discussion about comfort and discomfort but I could have made that a less neurologically confrontational mm -hmm. experience just by being aware of that conversation I've lost track a little no, bit. I think, it's, um, I think you're totally yeah. making sense. It's, you're yeah. sort of saying that by um, giving people an opportunity to, to consent yeah. and set their own boundaries, you actually enable uh, a deeper confrontation and a, you enable more types of confrontation because people have said, yes, I'm willing to be confronted in this. Yes, way. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, and um, in terms of um, the artistic possibilities there, the, the moment you start to, to experience 
to explore the neurodiversity of, of voices and the, the voices that are within the poetry and the, and the literary community and how many different ways people can experience things. Suddenly you've got this like incredibly wide platform. I watched uh, Melissa Lee Horton perform I Am Very Precious recently and it was like the most incredible experience to watch someone talk about an talk about their body and their experience um, and it's different from mine but it it suddenly the the possibilities of of that experience being something that everybody in the room got to be part of was so moving like the the room was utterly silent and you could feel like chasms opening up inside and that creates better art i think the more the more of that we have the better art becomes and i think that relates also to what you were saying earlier about when you do access well when you do when you do consent and boundaries well you enable people to be more of themselves you enable people to not limit parts of themselves i was i was thinking about the arica event that i mentioned earlier because i felt welcomed because i felt like my access needs to be taken care of i was so much more comfortable um, walking around with my big red ear protectors on because I can't handle all the noise and all of the distraction. And I was like, I'm just going to rock it out. I'm going to look really weird, but that's fine because I'm actually welcome in this space. And when you welcome more types of people and enable them to be themselves, then you have more of these encounters that you talked about as a rupture. Right? Yeah. yeah. What about you, Andre? Because we've been like, <laughs> going no, at sorry. it here. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> I, I guess I'm sort of stating the obvious when I talk about what the audience gets from that is um, of that sort of variety. I mean, I think I just saw, I saw a Star Trek episode. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> you know, um, you know, they, well, they landed on this planet that was where people, they were trading in stories and trading in other people's and that became this high value thing. Other people's lived experience became really this thing that, you know, that there was even a black market in because it's some areas they weren't able to delve into. Anyway, that's not a <laughs> subject. Really but cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess what I'm saying is, is that audiences are hungry. And I think many, um, generally, the wider audience hasn't been primed for the multitudes of voices that are out there. So they, they lean in towards what they know. But I think they're, they're hungry for the stories that of value that they trade in. And I think it's about cracking open the wall or the door or the theater space or the, you know, the venue spaces and saying that these voices are here. And I think when you, when you actually can get or create spaces in which people can get their butts in seats <laughs> and actually see, um, see or, or hear or experience whatever it is that they're going to experience, they're, they're just going to. I think devour it, and I think the evidence is there over and over when you when you put people who aren't usually exposed to certain things that when you put them live, especially in a live space, whereas in film, people can switch off or they can say I'm not there, but when you put them in a live space and they are in a way um, challenged over what they're about to experience or confronted in some way, that I think people open up to it more and more and they absorb it. I, Right at the moment, I'm taking, I'm caring for my uh, younger cousin who's 13, and I'm, I'm witnessing him, and and you know he's living with me, and we're, we're going to the gallery, and here's someone who's, despite his mom, you know, raising him with bought mine, he's from a small island, and I'm taking him to things, and he's just 
eating it up. And I, I, I guess I'm going off the... <laughs> but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's the growth. This is the benefit, I think, is regardless of what type of creative you are, you, you want an audience. And I think it's about making sure and finding a way that the audience can come, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And that, in turn, will push... The art. Yeah, it's not just about more artists on the stage. It's not not just about the diversity of the artists on the stage. It's about the diversity of the audiences in the room, and that includes the art too. Um, Who wants to speak to the same faces over and over? Yeah, because that's the other thing is that sometimes I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm already you know performing to the choir. They're already won over. I can rant and scream about (laughs) you know about all sorts of the same things I'm doing and go. But I know this audience. It's going to like it anyway. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. Like for myself, I've actually, well, for about two years, I don't invite friends to events anymore because I know they're going to like it or they're going to yeah, tell me they like it. Yeah. So my test has always been, what is an audience who doesn't know me at all going to think of my work? And that's always been, and then I go, oh, this didn't quite work. And, but I, I don't just blame them. I blame whether or not my words were clear enough or you know that sort of thing so yeah am i going off (laughs) no i think that's i i I would agree that i think that's and i mean if you look at the political situation we're in at the moment in so many ways it's like a 50 50 state isn't it like 50 50 world right now and where it's one side of the coin or the other and i think you see that in mainstream television in mainstream arts and either there's the embrace of diversity or the no we want things to stay how they are and i think if you can create performances that are open to everyone as a practice as an arts producer or an organizer that are open from the beginning to as many voices as possible um that sense of it being for you or for you alone starts to erode i'd li- i'd like to see more collisions between yeah. one one form or another it shouldn't have to just cater to one type of audience or one type of performer these words collisions <laughs> ruptures. like these are amazing things that we should be talking yeah. about and my hope is that like the audience listening at home um <laughs> is is now getting like oh yeah i should totally do this thing yeah. i should do this thing better so if they are if they are thinking that what is your what's your sort of top advice for people who realize that they really should be doing accessibility better that they need more people to access their work what's your top advice what do you wish they would do i think you could do simple simple things like well, no, it's an assumption by me saying most people, for what I'm about to say, mm-hmm. saying that most people have a computer, but most people don't. But if you happen to have access to the internet, I think you can often start start there. It's a, it's if you have it, it's a simple place to begin in terms of I would like to do an event. Let me type some things into this browser, <laughs> you know, and yeah. see what pops up. And then maybe I can uh, send a comment to their Twitter or to their <laughs> something and see if they get back. And then sometimes I think it might require activity. You have to sometimes go out and meet and speak. And I just think if you're going to organize, it takes a lot of thinking what it is you want 
and giving yourself a proper time frame to put that on. Mm. And if you don't have that proper, let's say a friend says, oh, I can give you that space in two weeks. It's okay to say, I think I can do so much in two weeks, but maybe this would be the platform that I'll invite some people to or something and then they could see and say, I want to go bigger and broader, wider, higher, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and bring those and bring it in. But I, I, I do think you have, again, knowing your, what we talked about earlier, knowing mm-hmm. your limitations, but then also having um, an idea and sharing your ultimate goal with others mm-hmm. so that people know where, so they can help you get there as well. I think that point around planning and time is yeah. really, really important because so much of the arts is operating under so much pressure and mm. there's so many people feel like they constantly have to be producing, producing, making, making, more, yeah. more, more. One of the effects of that is that so much stuff happens on a shoestring. One of the effects of that is that so much happens in the first space that you find that you can get into. Yes, yeah. And then, as a result of both, of both of those things, the first thing that gets lost is accessibility. And broadly accessibility, but I think particularly disability accessibility. Yes, People yeah. go for the yeah. first space yeah. they get, and it's usually up some stairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or people go for the first space they can get, and it's too expensive, so they can't have cheap tickets. And, and it's actually okay for your art to happen slowly. Like yeah. It's actually okay for you to take your time and yeah. plan so that you can do a better job. Yeah. It might even work out economically in the end. You don't have to constantly be new and producing and making new things yeah. you can let things happen slowly and that way maybe more people will get to see yeah. it yeah. i think also as an art practitioner or an artist being aware of diversity is important if you are of the majority if you are a person of the majority i've, I've heard complaints a few times which i find quite fascinating where people say well I know I'm not going to win this competition because I'm the majority voice. And just recognising that experience as, well, this is what it feels like on the other (laughs) side. But also, like, without being ranty, because recognising that your space as a a majority is actually, is something that I believe when you start to embrace diversity, you have to embrace that you have less space in the room because there are more voices and that's exciting um that's seeing what comes out of that but also you can do things in your own practice i'm i'm no expert at any of this but i was writing poem recently and realized i was using gendered pronouns in it and i thought okay what what would happen if i took the gender out of this and it became a totally different it's not finished yet but it it feels like a more interesting process just by considering okay I don't have to be stereotyping in that way or I don't have to be streamlining in that way and the way stories are told if you start to consider diversity and other voices in your experience in relation to them and the potential for how voices could be embrace that like embrace the fact that you're not the only voice in the room embrace the fact that that creates more interesting characters that creates more interesting narrative streams it's exciting it should be exciting don't resent it everyone wants to be able to pitch to as you were saying harry everyone wants to be able to go as fast as they can and produce as much as possible and that means every time there's a call for artists (laughs) you kind of check do i do i tick that criteria can i can i be on that one can i apply to that actually slowing down and taking it at your own speed um we don't have to be industrialist artists (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a nice phrase i um i agree with um 
I can read all of this. <laughs> um, Andrew was talking about both that you can you can start by just googling it or using the non corporate, non creepy surveying search engine of your choice. Um, but um, and, but you you also do need to talk to the um, the experts by experience. You do need to get out there and actually ask people what do I need to do here. And I agree with that. But I would also add, if you are a funded organisation, if you have if you have any public money coming in there, you must have a decent budget line around accessibility. And that needs yes. to be written yes. in yes. from the start. And even if you don't know what you're going to do with it, you need to have written that in and decided yeah. that you're going to do something with it. And one of the top reasons for that is, um, if you don't know what you're doing around accessibility, pay somebody who does. Yeah. So what we did for Anatomy is, we, we with Sandra actually, we hired um, an accessibility consultant because... We knew that we didn't know enough to do it properly. And we said, can you spend a couple of days with us auditing what we're doing and telling us what we're doing wrong and helping us do it right? So pay somebody who knows what they're talking about to tell you what you're doing wrong and then actually do what they say, um, I think is a... And you should you can budget for that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's one of my top bits of advice to, to help make that and happen. And with organised, not just organised, but organisations as well, is being aware around, around your own prejudices around all those marginalized groups and those intersectionalities in terms of, um, because uh, when people are planning often, I think without being conscious of it, they imagine certain things. So they imagine the, when, how can I say, when they're, for example, they say, when we're programming, oh, this person may, um, may be hearing impaired. And so they may select a white hearing impaired male, for example. And mm. then, but what I'm trying to get at is that there are so many, but people imagine certain things. So people don't often think about there are so many different ways in which people might fall into different yes. things. And so. You only get to be one of the things. Yeah, you don't that's, get to yeah, be two yeah, of the things. That's what I'm saying. And yeah. being, I, I guess I can't quite express what I'm trying to say, but it's about being open to all of that. Yeah. And you just might take three in one go. <laughs> but, no, but you know what I mean? It's just being aware because I, uh, again, I, I'm going to bring up the black gay male or black queer male space. And often um, I feel like it's, you You could, you often see the representative of a black lesbian identified woman who sort of fills this slight quote unquote feminine space. Mm. Um, but it's very hard to find a feminine, quote-unquote, um, queer black male mm. in space. Whereas like, in in the black queer community, you see it quite often, you know what I mean? But it's very hard to... Yeah, whereas in, in the debate around gay circles would be, in white gay circles, would be the, the masculine male, the butch male versus the femme male and you see too many of them and they're too representative as well so there's all this argument yeah. well i feel like that argument doesn't really happen <laughs> yeah. you know because you don't really it's about being aware of all these different things and how they sort of fall in and and not to allow yourself to think i'm i'm going to fill this space now because this person fits what I expect mm. to fit. If there's mm. these expectations of the fit, yeah, 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 yeah. and saying you, how can I even break that expectation? You've been booked you know, for being like, one token thing, and then they, you turn up and they realise you're another thing. Yes, as well. yes, yes. And you're only supposed to be one token. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. oh, but now you're just asking for too much. I yeah. don't really know how yeah. we can do that. I don't know. Like I, I have some different, different yeah. but related issues, which is that I. 
um, I'm a queer person, a, a genderqueer person, and, and also um, autistic. And those two things uh, go together more often than people expect. But mm -hmm. the two communities do not. They do not understand each other. Clubbing and partying is so central to, to LGBT history and still to LGBT socialising. It's just totally inaccessible to me. Yeah. I can't go in there. I can't go in those spaces. I can't go in these noisy, crowded spaces. Like my, my head would explode. I'd have a meltdown. And there aren't there aren't there aren't many quiet queer spaces. That I oh can god, go that's into. so true. It's yeah, horrible. Yeah, yeah. I just want to sit around with yeah. some tea. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but and then at the other end, because there has been um, historically um, underdiagnosis of women and LGBT people in, on the autistic spectrum, like a lot of underdiagnosis, the autism community has a tendency to be very, very male. Um, and also for some similar dynamics, um, very, very white. And so I go to an autism um, uh, self-advocacy group, an autism mutual support group, and everyone, everyone, everyone is, is a white male, a straight white male, everyone, literally. Um, and, and the discussion subject, subject is relationships. And I'm like, None of what, any of what you're saying is remotely relevant to yeah. me. As a physically disabled person as well, like, I had a choice when I was younger. I, it feels like it was a choice of which trajectory I went down in terms of how far I explored my sexuality. And and I realised I, ca I can't do LGBT commun community activity. I can't be, I can't go to gay club. My options closed down. I know who I am now, but, that, but I never got a chance to push any further in any other direction because there wasn't space to do that. My friends who went to gay clubs sort of like came round for breakfast the next day. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, great, good. Um, how was that? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it's it, uh, it. Even in terms of that, that's such a limiting experience in terms of that sense of of getting to open open doors in terms of identity, in terms of opening doors, in terms of creativity. I think they're not mutually exclusive. Identity and creativity yeah, have to yeah. be combined, so there has to be space for both of yeah. those things. And that's a really, it's really, yeah. and what you're describing is very familiar. It's a, it's an interesting experience. On the intersection of all of these things, and it sounds like we all feel that we've been let down by by LGBT spaces at one point or another, which is like it's heart, it's really heartbreaking. There's a book that I highly recommend to everyone called Fading Scars, with the subtitle of um, my queer disability history and it's a really amazing memoir of somebody who was very involved in in um, disability rights activism mm -hmm. mostly around san francisco and gets into like these intersections and um what can happen well as well as what yeah. can happen badly it's a beautiful book let's let go a little bit here because yeah. we've we've talked we've given our advice we've um we've talked about what all the possibilities are what are the clangers? What are the accessibility <laughs> clangers that you've experienced? What are some of the most infuriating things that you'd like to rant about? I did a gig once. I, I used to do a set that was basically like I passed as able-bodied and then I'd do sort of like sexy feminine poems and then halfway through I'd say, oh, and I also have this disability and totally changed the trajectory. And that felt like a good way of opening up conversation. I, I felt like I had to trick people into listening um, for a long time. And I got 
booked on on that basis for for a gig in at a festival and i noticed that disabled there were disabled people trying to come in and people had sort of left the left and gone oh but go and get blah blah and and disabled people there were all these people in wheelchairs trying to get into the space and there was a ridge that they had to get over so they couldn't come in and the organizers were saying but no no we'll lift you in that's fine in a festival in a tent and it was sort of like but how what if they just wanted to like pop their head around the door and go oh no that's i hate poetry i'm gonna leave it (laughs) (laughs) so it was that thing of um there there have been so many experiences where if you're disabled they say oh it's accessible but what they mean is we're going to draw so much attention to you that you're you either are in or you're out and that is not accessible that does not feel accessible to me um and that and and then the same promoters like a year after that managed to get themselves a ramp sorted but then made an assumption based upon my description of my disability that because i get very fatigued easily they put me on really really early and when I asked to be put on later so I didn't have to like get up in a state (laughs) of paralysis and and get my carer to take me to to the event they sort of said well no you know the, the the lineup's been set we can't accommodate you actually performing later so almost from the point of view of, come on, we've done enough already. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. I, I said, please don't book me <laughs> after that. But that was really annoying. And also it was a paid gig and I had to start turning it down. So that is yeah. always a bummer. <laughs> That's a really bad story. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think it all... highlights a few of the things that we, we've touched on. Yeah. And what, what, both the like not making assumptions, actually asking instead of assuming. And... And also something we haven't talked about as much, which is that accessibility isn't isn't just about putting a stopgap in there. It's about um, it's about enabling autonomy. It's about, people, yes. it's about enabling people who have different access needs to make their own decisions and yeah. do what they want to do, like yeah. anybody else. Do you find that you have to turn down gigs often, or I have a situation where um, because I sometimes pass as able-bodied, um, I get asked to do things and have to be the one who raises the actually is the station nearby accessible is is the venue accessible and yes I do I do sometimes find myself turning down performances um just from from the sake of no that's not physically manageable or I financially I wouldn't be able to get there and it's not that I want to be a millionaire through being a poet but you, you if you if you spend more money getting to yeah. a venue that then you can afford that week that's that that makes it an impossible feat and also in terms of just attending things like open mics and stuff i what i find in the arts world is you have to be physically present a lot and if your body can't be it's so easy to get just forgotten and people to you it's the chats in pubs of oh what are you doing why are all the conversations in pubs that's also a, a yes. problematic it's, situation that's <laughs> something when i first came here was the, the networking is done yeah. especially in the poetry world around yeah. uh the pub around the pub and the open mic space yeah. actually the open mic space yeah and so therefore, there's a lot of issues. Like I have issues around, um, I can't enter often crowded spaces. Yeah. I feel awkward, or you know. So I ask 
friends to meet me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and if I don't have that, then it's just very difficult. Plus, I don't drink. So there's all these sort of things around the pub thing that make yeah. it a very difficult space. Mm-hmm. And I know that in 10 years, what I was able to achieve in Bermuda, where I'm from, compared yeah. to here, um, even though Bermuda's small, I know that. But it's still, it's been very slow because I know of where um, that focus lays. And if you can't access that in itself, then that makes it really difficult. It can, yeah, yeah, it can be really hurtful as well because you have people that you formed friendships with and um, and you suddenly realise if you if you say, no, I can't drink for health reasons or, or no, I can't come to that event for health reasons or you don't you, you don't always want to explain why sometimes you just can't be there you you're you sort of get forgotten mm-hmm. and that feeling of um every time my body crashes I feel like I'm rebuilding not only my physical self but my artistic self from the very ground and and you sort of turn up in an event and people fail to recognize you and you you think but we a few years ago I was your resident poet or you know like I I was somebody who or even I just thought we were we were friends and and um friendships are so much in in the arts world sometimes about who's doing what (laughs) find finding who's who's really listening and who really wants to hear from you or or keep turning up or or keep being there for you like that's that's a different thing to who you're who you're schmoozling with um (laughs) and that that can be a very um can leave a sort of foul taste in Mm. your mouth i think when you realize oh okay i'm i'm no longer relevant because i haven't been here (laughs) it's really painful i think this this overlap between your social world and your professional world which is 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 a huge part of the arts right and that the social world and the the, the professional world are often the same thing and as you've both been saying like the networking the professional relationships are built in these casual social situations that that there are all sorts of obstacles to entry to i have my own obstacles to entry to those things and i, I almost never go to the post gig <laughs> chat yeah. Yeah. Uh, the way that i think about it of any networking event of any post gig socialization is that that is that's going to be the hardest job that i have to do that day getting on stage and performing no problem totally happy with that yeah often gives me more energy. I mean, obviously it's work, so it takes some, you know, it takes some effort. Going to any kind of social or networking event is the biggest drain of energy. And I have to think about going to it as a very difficult job that I have to do. Um, and so I go to like one of them, If I, you know, I might go to one a month. I might save up the energy to, to stay after the gig once a month. Otherwise I'm like literally on my bike and we home to <laughs> It's so much better. And without... Honestly, without social media, I would not have an arts career because instead of all of that networking, which requires a social facility and uh, and an ability to be in crowded, noisy spaces that I simply don't have, I would I wouldn't have been able to build a reputation or an interest mm. in my work. Except, mm. But I'm good at Twitter, so <laughs> that helped, you know, yeah. and that kind of formed a partway substitute. But I still feel what you're feeling, which is this horrible sort of social death that. Sometimes because you're not present in the space where everyone else is socialising, because I'm like in bed at nine, <laughs> yeah. that, um, that I don't that I don't get to I don't get to have friends. Yeah, in, in my world. Yeah, and that and those chats d- develop 
creative um, avenues, but they also develop creative ideas. It's the the bit where you go, hey, let's uh, do let's do a thing with this, and then you follow it up later on. If you're not there for that initial momentum chat it goes back to that thing of okay we've had this conversation hey let's do a thing with this now how are we going to bring in as many voices as possible if, if someone's not been in that conversation I used to have a friend who would just email me the chats that had happened afterwards and that was a really nice thing yeah. I liked it I thought mm. it was you know you, you if you can't be there you still felt missed or or it's not like i i need to be in every room ever but um, <laughs> but it's nice to know what's going on out there yeah, yeah again so social media has been really important i've started putting in a thing on you know you know you get the form when you've been booked and it says do you have any particular access needs and half the time they ignore it but um <laughs> i've started they do but uh, <laughs> I've started writing in, is there a networking event? Is there a social event that's meant to be part of this whole thing? Am I yeah. supposed to benefit from this networking event? If there is, can I have a buddy, please, for yeah. the first half hour? Can somebody yeah. introduce me to people for the yeah. first half hour? Can somebody start conversations for me? And it's it's not happened <laughs> Yeah, I've asked. That's I've asked such a, a good idea, actually. And it's just not yeah. happened yet. I, once or twice, somebody has like half-heartedly introduced me to their friend and then yeah. got away. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm trying to work on it, but yeah. it's not happening yet. I was just gonna say I remember what was I was really impressive uh, bar whatever um, I had mentioned that I I don't come as often because it's the entering of the club that get really um, sort of terrifies me a bit and um, I was impressed with oh that's no problem we have someone meet you at the tube and introduce you and walk in with you and you can sit with them on I I didn't take them up on it, but <laughs> yeah. I was really impressed with that yeah. the offer was there and it was it was quick. It wasn't like oh, what could we do? You know, oh, I know. It was sort of like we've come across this before. Don't worry, we'll get someone out there. That's yeah. exactly what Sisters yeah. Uncut did as well. When really, I was yeah. saying I'm anxious about being in my wheelchair for the first time, they came and met me and and brought me in. So it wasn't even just a case of oh, we have access. It's like we have access and we're going to check that you're okay. Yeah. Um, and that was a really uh, important thing. Relatedly, um, when you have applications online, I think that's something that happens a lot is the deadlines are very short. Like, hey, we've got a thing. Again, going back to that thing of produce it fast, we've got to, we've got a deadline. And if you have uh, a physical limitation, you you need to sort of schedule in your, your day. Yeah. So um, I, I find that I miss a lot of really important applications. I, I put them all in my Google calendar and set like a week alarm. Um, but if, if I can't type that week or if there's a, there's a problem, those deadlines are often, if you give me two weeks, I'm there's no way in hell that's going to happen ever like that so so um if you're going to meet those diversity criteria why not have this is our main deadline but if you have a reason for not meeting that um please get in touch if they were to say that and say okay we might possibly flex in your circumstances by a couple of days that kind of thing would enable the initial conversation of hey do you want to take part in this thing to reach out to mm. a wider communities um I, I, that kind of went off topic no a no bit, no but, I told but it, that would be really that would be a really helpful way of 
increasing your diversity and range of voices criteria in, in, in from my experience anyway i think i want to finish up on this idea of uh, access everywhere which is a slogan that i really like this idea that what we should be aiming for is access everywhere that there shouldn't be anywhere that anything happens that isn't accessible <laughs> yeah. across all of these lines that we've been talking around um, and i think my question to you then is as a kind of wrap up what is your vision for Access Everywhere? How, how would you like to see the arts transformed on that principle? I would like to see a world where Access Everywhere means that you're not only being booked when it's about your pigeonhole. I would like to see interesting genres booking interesting people that would be that would be really exciting if it w- weren't just a case of okay this is a specific thing catered to you and your needs it, it just you have needs and also you're good at this thing yeah. <laughs> that would be nice that's a beautiful vision I think jumping off from that is that representation. Again, I put myself back in the in the seat of the audience. I would like to think that any given night, any person of any manifestation can know or have or know where to look and say, I'm going to see myself somewhere. I'm gonna see myself in the art and my story or a story similar to mine will be told. Or that, you know, I met so-and-so the other day and I can go and see something that will give me some insight into so-and-so's life. You know, mm. that, that they're represented somewhere. You can see yourself. And the more that you see yourself, if you're a creative again, then you're more inspired to create mm. your story and then you become one of the hopefully many that already exist and will exist that are telling our stories back. Um, because I think eventually if you, it's like if you have a, a bowl and you put all the cream and they start spilling out, let's say um, outside is the BBC, I don't know, <laughs> or something or whatever it is, or some theatre space. People, I do think people will be forced to hear, there's only so much you can keep the voices outside the door, you know, mm. and then they get loud and they end up breaking through. Yeah, you, we need to see, and then you have more voices, and then eventually people will be forced to have to hear them. Or people yeah. will be going, why don't I hear about that? And they'll be yeah. asking, why aren't we hearing about that? And they'll be demanding those voices as well. Yeah, yeah, seeing yourself, and if you, and at the moments where you don't see yourself being changed and transformed by the people you are seeing yes, as well. Yeah. So if you, you it's that it's like that thing of if you only see like white skinny woman in crop tops, you feel ashamed for not being that. At the moment you see a, someone, a, a fat person on TV doing something you admire, you stop worrying about, oh God, am I the right size? Because you go, well, there, there are so many ways to be. Yeah. The more ways to be that there are in the world, the better, the better 
we'll all be producing other things. <laughs> that is, I, you know what, I'm going to leave it on that beautiful, beautiful sentence. That is yeah. such a wonderful last sentence. There are so many more things we could talk about and obviously we're all just talking from our own positions and no way have we covered every intersection <laughs> thoroughly. Um, but thank you both so much for that conversation. I've had a lovely time. It feels quite healing yeah. uh, this morning. Um, so uh, thank you, Andre Simons and Abby Palmer. This has been wonderful. Um, I was Harry Giles, and I'll hand you back to Lunar Poetry.